Our Father, we thank you for the grace that is ours through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for this day in which we particularly honor our mothers. We're grateful for those that bore us and raised us. And for many, of course, their mothers are with you. Father, I just pray that you will make this a special day for each and every mother, every grandmother. And I pray, Father, that uh, you will, will bless each one. And Father, I pray that you will guide us through this class hour as we study from the Word of God. We're so grateful for the truth which is shared in the, within the context of these events which transpired. To see that God is supreme through the course of history that you have come down through time and, and from your throne in heaven to minister directly to men and women on this planet. We're so blessed, and we thank you for your touch in our lives personally. And Father, we ask that this day your name will be exalted and magnified. We ask that you'll be present here as you have promised, and that you will touch each one of us according to our need, and that you will empower us to accomplish whatever you have placed before us to do. We ask, Lord, that uh, you will bless every class this morning and touch every student, every teacher, every person who was part of sharing together in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In the book of Joshua, we have the account of the conquest of the land of Canaan by the nation of Israel. And we were studying in the 22nd chapter of the book of Joshua. In the first part of that chapter, after the land has been conquered and peace has come upon the land, Joshua allows or sends the forces that were aiding the nine and a half tribes, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, sends them home with blessing. And they travel back across to the east side of the Jordan to rejoin their families and to pick up where uh, they had left off seven years before. And in the process of going home, just before they crossed the Jordan River, they erected an altar monument made out of stone. And that altar monument became a source of agitation for those on the west side of the Jordan who witnessed its construction or at least its existence. And so as we look at uh, chapter 22 and uh, read beginning at verse 13, that gives us somewhat of a background to what happens here. Then the sons of Israel sent to the sons of Reuben and to the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh into the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one chief for each father's household from each of the tribes of Israel. And each one of them was head of his father's household among the thousands of Israel. And they came to the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh to the land of Gilead, and they spoke with them, saying, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this unfaithful act which you have committed against the God of Israel, turning away from following the Lord this day by building yourself an altar to rebel against the Lord this day? Is not the iniquity of Peor enough for us, from which we have not cleansed ourselves to this day? Although a plague came on the congregation of the Lord, 
that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? And it will come about, if you rebel against the Lord today, that he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. If, however, the land of your possession is unclean, then cross into the land of the possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, or rebel against us by building an altar for yourselves besides the altar of our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah act unfaithfully in the things under the ban, and wrath fall on all the congregation of Israel? And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. As the men and women of Israel saw and heard, well, of course, only a few saw the actual altar that was built. And they reported to others who reported to others. And it, of course, spread throughout the whole nine and a half tribes that this had happened. And so they gathered together at Shiloh with Joshua to decide what to do. And there was actually a... a, a uh, a rumor going through the whole congregation that they need to put together an army and go over and teach the men, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, a lesson, and that they must remember to serve the God of Israel. And, you know, it just reminds me so much of what rumor does. Rumor is responsible for a great deal of war throughout history. Rumor is responsible for acts of violence which were unnecessary. Uh, because people didn't actually find out what the real situation was. In this case, fortunately, cool heads prevailed. I'm sure the cool head was primarily Joshua, who had just blessed these guys and sent them off to the other side, and now he's going to organize a campaign to fight against them? I don't think so. Not without finding out the real situation. And so in this particular passage, we discover what Joshua's plan was to find out whether there really ought to be war against these people or not. He's not mentioned by name here, Joshua, but certainly he is the motivating and driving force behind what happens. And I think he is the one who primarily urged that Phineas, the son of Eliezer, grandson of Aaron, be the head of this delegation of the chiefs of nine and a half tribes. So 11 men are sent, a chief from each of the nine and a half tribes, from the nine and one half tribe also had a chief, so 10 plus Eliezer, uh, were sent as a delegation to negotiate with the leaders of the Transjordanian tribes, those tribes that were on the east side of the Jordan River. The question is, why did Joshua choose Phinehas to be the leader of this particular delegation? Well, I have come up with what I think are three reasons, certainly not necessarily all the reasons, but first of all, I think Phineas was chosen because, first, because he represented the tribe of Levi, which was not one of the nine and a half tribes, and he also represented the priesthood because he was of the priestly tribe and specifically of the Aaronic line. And then secondly, since the tribes across the Jordan are being accused of apostasy here, it would seem appropriate to send the person who was next in line to inherit the high priesthood of the true faith, to be the one to go over there and lead this delegation. I think Eliezer was not sent for, for a couple of reasons. One, he was pretty old. In fact, we're going to discover he, dis, he dies very soon after this. And secondly, because Phineas has already proven himself. And that's my third point. Phineas has proven to be unflinching in the face of heresy. I'd like for us to go back to the 25th chapter of Numbers for a moment. 
You may remember back when we studied this particular passage during the life of Moses. The 25th chapter of Numbers is to me one of the more powerful passages in all of the Pentateuch. I'd just like to read the first 13 verses here. Now remember, uh, it says here, when Israel remained at Shittim. Now Shittim was a grove of trees on the plain of Moab, just east of the Jordan River, uh, somewhat southeast of Jericho. So it's in the other side of the river, just above the head of the, of the Dead Sea. They, that was where Israel was camped, poised, ready to launch the invasion into Canaan. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought his, to his relatives a Midianite woman, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. And those who died of the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. We highlighted at that particular time the zeal for the Lord that this man Phineas possessed. He was not one who said, you know, that's a naughty thing they're doing. Uh, he filled certainly with the Spirit of the Lord. He took care of the situation because this man uh, carried this, took this Midianite woman directly into his tent, as it says there so clearly in the passage, in, in the front of all Israel, he was in effect going, you know, to Israel and to its God because they were weeping be before the Lord for this great tragedy. And this guy was continuing to do what was responsible for the, the plague. And so Phineas, in broad daylight and in front of everybody, went in there and slew these two persons. And God credited Phineas with being a man who displayed the zeal of the Lord. So I think that if the tribes of Reuben and Gad and one half Manasseh were in the minds of Israel thought to be rebelling and falling into again the sin of Baal Peor, who better to send than Phineas? who was the most ardent advocate of the true faith. He was not going to compromise. He was not going to accommodate heresy. And he, if any, if any, would be able to clearly see if this was heresy or not. So I think on the part of Joshua, this was a wise choice. And I think that choice was made by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Well, one of the things that's not mentioned, of course, in this passage are the details of uh, what must have transpired. 
They were at Shiloh. They met at Shiloh. And I mentioned to you before that Shiloh is up on top of the Judean, um, <laughs> the Ephraimic Highlands. And, and so you're located, if you're at Shiloh, you're up 2,000 or so feet above sea level, maybe a little above that. And they went, this delegation went over to Gilead. Now Gilead's east of the Jordan River. Now again, if you can kind of keep the profile of the country in mind here, um, they had to travel a distance of between 50 and 60 miles to, it doesn't say where they met with the tribal leaders of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, but the first major town they would have come to, which um, would possibly have been the meeting place, was Jazer. And, and that was about 50 or 60 miles to the east. So you have to think about this. These 11 men had to walk down the escarpment into the Jordan Valley. They had to cross the Jordan Valley. They had to go over the Jordan at a ford, probably at Adam or Succoth, one of those places. And, and then they had to climb the Gilead uh, escarpment, which is higher than the Ephraimic escarpment. Because the Gilead Plateau is about 1,000 feet or more higher than the Judean and the Ephraim highlands. And so they had to climb, you know, as you, if you, when you cross the Jordan River there at that point, you're about 1,000 feet below sea level. So you're coming from 2,000 above to 1,000 below. You're coming from 1,000 below to 3,000 above. So, I mean, we're talking about 7,000 feet vertically they have to drop and then climb on top of 60 miles or so uh, travel. So this wasn't something that just happened overnight. This took them several days to make the journey. And of course, we have to also understand how could they meet with the leaders of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh unless some couriers were sent ahead to inform them that they needed to meet together or they got there and said, okay, would you bring the guys together, which would be many more days. So we're talking about a significant time frame here. Uh, we're probably talking about an event which in and of itself, by the time they met and did all of this, took at least two weeks, maybe longer. What the passage does say is that the 11 men met with the leaders of the Transjordanian tribe. And even though it doesn't say so specifically, I very much believe that Phineas is the spokesman here. I mean, Phineas is filled with the zeal of the Lord. I don't think you could contain him while somebody else talked. And, and so I think Phineas is the spokesman here uh, behind all that transpires. And he puts it to them clearly and straightforwardly. He didn't go with a bunch of diplomatic niceties, you know. He cut straight to the chase. And he said, why have you rebelled against the Lord by building that altar? <laughs> he didn't say, uh, by the way, guys, what was the point of the pile of rocks over there? He says, why have you rebelled against the Lord by building this altar? They had built a stone replica of the bronze altar which stood before the tabernacle at Shiloh. And the logical conclusion was that they were going to use that altar to make unlawful offerings to the Lord God. I'd like for us to go back briefly to the 12th chapter of Deuteronomy. Reading at the first verse, These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their asherim with fire. 
and you shall cut down the graven images of their gods, and you shall obliterate their name from that place. Again, in case you weren't here when we talked about that before, the Canaanites and the Amorites uh, built their places of worship on hilltops where they would be clearly visible, where they'd be, quote, closer to the divinities or at least to the sky. And there they built altars where they made sacrifices, sacrifices that involved vegetation, which involved animals, and on occasion involved human beings. And uh, these altars were almost always surrounded by a grove of trees. They were not terribly different in their thinking from the Druids who also worshipped in groves of oak trees. And they usually had pillars erected there. Now these pillars were, were phallic symbols because these were fertility rites that they practiced. And so these were symbols of sexual um, you know, encounter and usually there was some kind of an image or symbol of Asherim, which is the, the goddess Asherah, who was the female consort of Baal, who was the male fertility deity. And involved with this was usually sexual perversion, homosexuality as well as prostitution of various forms, which occurred as part of the worship. And so it was extremely vile. And, and so all of that was to be obliterated. And the groves were, to, I mean, the trees were to be cut down because they were symbol, symbolic of what went on up there. So the trees were to be cut down and the, and the pillars were to be destroyed and the, and the idols were to be burned and the whole thing was to be cleansed. Verse 4, you shall not act like this toward the Lord your God, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God shall choose from all of your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling. And there you shall come. And of course now we know at this moment it's Shiloh because that's where the tabernacle was established, was at Shiloh. Later, of course, the tabernacle would be moved, and, and finally, of course, a temple would be erected, and that would be the place. So the idea here is that they were not to just, on their own whim, choose where they were going to worship the God, to God in the form of actual sacrifices. You could worship God anywhere. You could pray to God. You could call upon God. You, you know, could uh, serve the Lord anywhere. But the actual place where sacrifices were to be made was to be the bronze altar at the tabernacle at Shiloh at this moment in time. And so that is what Phineas is complaining about here. You're making a rival altar a place where sacrifices will be made other than the, the ordained and proper uh, altar there at Shiloh. And of course, to him, this would be uh, creating a fractionalization of the nation and, and causing people to be divided. You know, later on, after uh, David established the um, worship at Jerusalem, he brought the ark to Jerusalem, and the worship happened there, when uh, Solomon then built the temple and everybody came to the temple to worship and then when Solomon's son Rehoboam became the jerk that he was or, or expressed the jerk that he was the ten northern tribes rebelled under Jeroboam Jeroboam didn't want the people under his rule going down to Jerusalem and worshiping there under Rehoboam and, my, and thinking well maybe you know we shouldn't be a divided nation maybe we should be rejoined and so he established places to worship at Dan in the north and Bethel in the south but all in his land so that they would worship there and he set up calves you know sort of emblems of the golden calf in the wilderness only he said these calves represent Yahweh which is a double blasphemy of course 
But the idea was that they didn't have to go to Jerusalem. They could worship right there at Bethel or, uh, or at the north at Dan. They didn't have to go to Jerusalem. And, and, and uh, this, of course, was, a, was apostasy because they were making sacrifices other than the place that was ordained, which at that time was the temple in Jerusalem. The western tribes of Israel, those west of the Jordan River, feared that a violation of the command of God by the eastern tribes, the Transjordanian tribes, would bring the wrath of God on all of Israel, on the eastern tribes for actually perpetrating it, and on the western tribes for allowing it to happen. So they felt they were doing the right thing here by going over and pursuing these guys and getting them straightened out as to where they were to sacrifice to the Lord. So Phineas then recounts a little bit of history here. He says to them, and of course he knows this very well because he was prime actor in that uh, initial rebellion at Shittim. He reminded the Transjordanian leaders of the tragedy that struck Israel when 24,000 of them died of a plague that was sent by God because they had spiritually prostituted themselves in the worship of the Baal of Peor, the chief Moabitist, Moabite uh, deity, which was just simply another version of the fertility god Baal, who was worshipped by the Phoenicians, who was worshipped by the Canaanites, who was worshipped by the Amorites, uh, who was nothing more than an um, evolutionary product of the ancient Sumerian worship of Enlil. Phineas was so determined to crush this apparent heresy that he offered to share Canaan with them. If their rebellion was the result of the evil influences of living in Gilead and Bashan, then guys, come on over and live in Canaan. We'll move over and make room. That's how much we want you to worship God truly. We're willing to share the land with you, even though that would bring you know, tens of thousands of more people over. Well, actually, it would probably bring a quarter of a million people or more over the Jordan into Canaan. And they were willing. They were willing to share. At least Phineas was here, willing to share if that was what needed to happen. Now, he talks about, in verse 19, the uncleanness of the land. What is this uncleanness of the land? Well, I think there are three possibilities that he may have been referring to any one or more of. First of all, that the relics of the Amorite worship, such as the numerous high places that are referred to there in Deuteronomy chapter 12, may have still been influencing these um, eastern tribes towards idolatry. Phineas makes an interesting statement here. Let me go back to verse 17 of the passage. He says, Is not the iniquity of Peor enough for us today, from which we have not cleansed ourselves to this day? Although a plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. Interesting insight. It's possible that what he's referring to is the probable heresy of these people right now that he's referring to. But commentators feel that what he is saying here is that he knows because he is the heir to the high priest and he is a spiritual man within Israel, he knows that in the hearts of many people in Israel there still is a longing for the worship of Baal Peor. Now they're not doing it overtly, they're not openly following it because of the chastisement that was brought upon them seven years before at Shittim. But in their hearts they're still longing for it, which if that's the case, 
helps us understand that Phineas was a very insightful man. Now, discernment is a gift from God. Spiritual discernment is a gift from God. And he doesn't give us all the same spirit of discernment. Some of us have more discernment, some of us have less. I think our discernment is enhanced, however, by the closeness of our walk with God. It's sort of like, you've heard it said many times, the best way to train people to discover counterfeit money is for them to spend a lot of time with the real stuff. If you're very familiar with the real stuff, you're quick to uh, recognize something that isn't the real stuff. And, and so the closer we walk with God, the quicker we are to recognize heresy, deviation from the truth, however small it might be. And so I think that's probably the case of Phineas. He's walking close with God. He's got the discernment of the indwelling spirit. And he understands that there is still in Israel a spirit after Baal Peor in the hearts of many people. And he's referring to that here. I think if all of us are really honest with ourselves, we realize that lurking deeps down inside us is a, is, is a, a tendency towards rebellion. You know, at any given moment, if certain things come upon us, we, you know, some kind of rebellion rises up within us. Um, maybe out of frustration, but whatever is the case, most of us probably realize that we are not yet in our purified form. Even though hopefully we walk uh, more truly with the Lord day by day, but we still have a struggle. It's still a battle all along the way. Secondly, it could be that Phineas is referring to the influences of the neighboring nations. Surrounding Canaan and uh, Gilead and Bashan were, were the pagan peoples who were either outside the area that was supposed to be conquered or who were not conquered by Israel, particularly those up in what we today would know as uh, southwestern Syria and southern Lebanon. Those areas were not conquered by Israel as they were supposed to have been. Plus, there were other neighboring tribes to the north of, Gile of Bashan and to the south of uh, Gilead which, you know, could be influencing these people. Thirdly, though, he may be referring to residual demonic influences that had originally empowered the pagan worship of the Canaanites, the Amorites. You've probably all heard stories that missionaries have told of how statues or images that represent pagan deities have been brought home by somebody as kind of a souvenir from someplace and things started really going poorly in the home and finally somebody has the discernment to recognize that this thing is a, represents a, 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 an evil force and sometimes when that I've heard missionaries recount or others recount of taking that image and putting it in the fireplace and burning it and hearing screams coming out of this thing and that's not because a, a demon is being burned by the fire but because the demon is being recognized and exercised as you might say uh, from this place. And I, I think demons attach themselves to things and places. And a place where pagan gods were worshipped, even if you cut down the trees and so forth, there could still be a residual demonic influence there. I mean, the whole land that Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh inhabited, of course, the other side of the Jordan too, the whole land of Canaan, had been given over to paganism. And only as, as, as people believed in God and claimed his power could the demonic influences be relieved and, and driven off. And so this may be what he is referring to. But whatever is the case, 
the idea is there was still a lurking, possible lurking evil influence. Not that the east side of the Jordan was any more evil than the west side of the Jordan. Whatever the case, Phineas urged them to move across the Jordan into Canaan where they could be closer to the tabernacle and to the true altar and not rebel against the Lord by maintaining a rival altar. To strengthen his argument, Phineas reminded them of the sin of Achan, who dared to violate the ban that God had put upon Jericho and paid the price with his life, but not his alone, the lives of his entire family. Well, let's read on in beginning the 21st verse of Joshua 22. Then the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and spoke with the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord. He knows, and may Israel itself know, it was not in rebellion or if in an unfaithful act against the Lord, do not save us this day. If it was in rebellion or in an unfaithful act against the Lord, do not thou save us this day. If we have built us an altar to turn away from following the Lord, or if to offer a burnt offering or grain offering on it, or if to offer sacrifices of peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself require it. But truly we have done this out of concern, for a reason saying, In time to come your sons may say to our sons, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan River a border between you and us and you. You sons of Reuben and sons of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your sons may make our sons stop fearing the Lord. I think what you have to see is as, as the leaders of the, of the tribes there of Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh heard the words of Phineas, I think they were stunned. Whoa, it's like somebody hit him over the head with a rock, you know. <laughs> How could he, you know, assume this? But they aren't angry. You notice that there's no evidence here of them being angry because they're being accused of, of apostasy. But instead, what do they do? They give a thunderous affirmation of faith, invoking God as their witness. They swore fidelity to the Lord God of Israel by the threefold use of his name. El Elohim Yahweh. El Elohim Yahweh is what they're saying there in that passage of Scripture. Twice they shouted the three names of God and called upon him to judge them if they had intended any rebellion by the construction of this stone altar. Then they patiently explain to the Israelite leaders that the purpose of this monument was not to offer burnt offerings, offerings of peace or any of the other offerings, but it was to remind Israel that all of the tribes served the Lord regardless of which side of the Jordan they lived on. They're proclaiming that this river is not a border. This river is not a border. They wanted to make sure that the Jordan River was not viewed by the Western tribes as the end of their land, but just as a river flowing through their land because they did not want to be relegated to the status of non-citizens and be proclaimed as outside the commonwealth of Israel, therefore not having any right to come and worship at Shiloh and to make sacrifices on the bronze altar before the tabernacle. 
This was very important to them. And therefore, they proclaimed this very loudly. You have to, I guess, try to visualize the meeting with Phineas and the other ten elders of Israel standing there and the elders of the three, well, the two and a half tribes, standing opposite them in this convocation. And then for the, the leaders of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh to almost, almost as if it was orchestrated, break out with this threefold proclamation to God. It's like when we sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I wish we'd sing it more. You get to sense here that God's name is being proclaimed, and you don't take the name of God lightly if you're an Israelite. In fact, later on, of course, it became to totally prohibited to use the word Yahweh. Later on, they make it so that, you know, you, you, you can't even pronounce it <laughs> at all. But, but here they proclaim, pro proclaim it very loudly, and they underscore by this statement that it is the opposite of what you're saying. We have built this altar to proclaim our unity with you, unity in the faith. And you are not to call this river a border. And we built that there so you will remember that we are your people too, because we want to worship God as you worship God. You can imagine the impact that had on Phineas and the others. Phineas, being a man of discernment, could tell that these men were being very genuine, that what they were proclaiming was true. And what we discover as we read on into the next passage is that it brings great joy to Phineas and the elders and great joy to all the leaders of Israel and I'm sure to Joshua. <laughs> when Joshua heard the words from Phineas, I'm sure he just threw up his hands in praise to God to know that the blessing he had proclaimed on those two and a half tribes was genuine blessing and, and that they are responding appropriately and what had been built there was not a, a kind of, you know, fist in the sky, we're going to be our own people thing, but a declaration of unity in the faith. One of the, one of the things we discover, well, let's just read on in the next few verses, and I think I have enough time to get, read the next few verses here, beginning at verse 26. Therefore we said, let us build an altar, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice, rather it shall be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we are to perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings that your sons may not say to our sons in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. Therefore we said, it shall also come about if they say this to us or to our generations in time to come then we shall say see the copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made not for burnt offerings or for sacrifice rather it is a witness between you between us and you far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away from following the Lord this day by building an altar for burnt offering, for grain offering or for sacrifice besides the altar of the Lord our God, which is before his tabernacle. So the altar monument was to be a reminder that all the tribes were equally a part of Israel regardless of where they tented, where their home was, where their uh, land was. That was irrelevant. They all were part of Israel. And what is interesting is they're proclaiming that the thought of rebellion didn't even cross their minds. It wasn't in this at all. They were totally motivated by the opposite 
of rebellion. They were in fact reaffirming their faith by the very monument that was mistakenly interpreted to represent apostasy. I think that this should be a lesson to us. Who was behind this rumor? It wasn't the Lord. So that only leaves Satan. Satan is always at work trying to hinder the work of the Lord. It doesn't matter where it is happening. Satan is at work trying to destroy or hinder the work of the Lord. And what better way than to stir up Christians against each other? There is no better way to destroy the work of God than to stir up Christians one against the other. You look down through the course of history and you'll discover that more has been done to damage the kingdom of God by stirring up the believers against each other than ever has happened because of an attack from the outside. In fact, an attack from the outside almost always galvanizes the church. And not only that, as Tertullian so wisely said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You start killing Christians and the church grows like gangbusters. One, I, my personal belief is that one of the tools of the enemy is rabid denominationalism. I have a book that deals with, um, uh, anyway, it has to do with having a Bible in one hand and a gun in the other hand. And it talks about the Christianity and the American frontier. And one of the little stories is very interesting to me, it's very insightful. There was a small town on the, in the West where there was only one pastor in the town, and he was a Methodist pastor. And so he was responsible for all the marriages and all the burials and everybody, of everybody in the town. And so one day he wrote to his bishop and he said, he, he wasn't really know, didn't know if he was doing the right thing. He said, should I, being a Methodist, you know, officiate over the burials of Baptists? And the bishop wrote back and said, bury all the Baptists you can. <laughs> there is rabid denominationalism which is responsible for tearing apart the church of the living God. You know, denominations exist and denominations have good reasons in some cases for existing, but not when you start claiming your denomination is the only denomination that's going to get into the kingdom of heaven and everybody else is a heretic. But, you know, often people will exalt, as Jesus said, the, the teachings of men above the teachings of God. And as we look at the differences between denominations, if those differences are only the teachings of men, then there is no reason to exalt one above the other. But if there is a difference because of the biblical teaching, then that's another case. Still shouldn't be rabid denominationalism, but we should be very careful. I think it's very important that we as believers, if we see what we think is a problem, if we see what think is, we think is apostasy <laughs> or heresy, that we pray intensely about this, situation and we study the scripture carefully so that we can understand whether someone is actually working out of motives which are wrong or not that we should not judge another's life simply because it doesn't seem to square with our particular little framework which may be very narrow and unbiblical let me close with first John <coughs> chapter 4 first three verses beloved do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 
and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. To confess that Jesus comes from God is not possible by an evil spirit. An evil spirit may admit that Jesus exists and God exists, but to declare, to declare that Jesus Christ is the very Son of God who came incarnate in the flesh and died for our sins to atone for our sins, evil spirits will not say that. And so there are some very powerful lines for determining apostasy, but sometimes we make those lines where they don't belong. So anyway, what was discovered, of course, was what was viewed as apostasy was actually an affirmation of faith. And God straightened out the whole situation. Well, we'll move from there next week.